If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The 19th century was a time of extraordinary scientific, technological and social change as old ideas clashed with new innovations. In today's episode, Professor Owen Davies explores why scores of men and women were admitted to asylums for their supernatural beliefs, and investigates why some people believed that new technologies, such as batteries and telephones, were being used against them as witchcraft. Putting the questions to him was Charlotte Hodgman, and she began the interview by asking how Owen set about researching the topic. The origin of the project was, was called Inner Lives, and the whole idea was to go from the medieval to the modern and explore the ways in which uh, witchcraft and magic can help us understand the way people think, their emotions, trying to get inside people's heads, which is very difficult, almost impossible thing to do, obviously, in history, unless you've got people writing about what they're feeling and doing. But, you know, we try, we try. And as part of that project, I wanted to look at... Uh, Asylum patients, because I'd already thought about this for years before that, and I'd put in a grant application, which didn't get any money. Uh, then I put it on the back burner, and then with this, this Inalize project, I kind of resurrected it, because I'd already come across um, asylum literature uh, and asylum case notes in which people were uh, expressing beliefs in witchcraft and magic. I thought, this is a, this is a fascinating potential entry uh, into how people express themselves because a lot of the sources we have on witchcraft and magic whether it's early modern or it's 19th century uh come from second hand it's other people writing them down you know so this is always the challenge for historians how do you get to the original voice and i'm still obviously i'm still these people aren't writing the, the down either but at the same time they're expressing things which otherwise might not be said so yeah so long and short of it this this was a, a way of taking a, a, a source which has not really been studied before in terms of popular belief and how people think about the supernatural. Perhaps it might be a good idea perhaps to start just by explaining how how kind of madness, air quotes, was understood before the 19th century, before we get to this point. Yeah, I mean, I, I flip in the book between insanity and madness. When I'm talking about popular culture, I kind of go, OK, let's talk about madness because that's the language of the time. Insanity I use for the kind of the first half of the book when I'm looking at what psychiatrists, early psychiatrists what their, their methodologies are, what their theories are. But madness is, is the language of the people uh, at the time. And prior to the, the rise of psychiatry as a medical discipline in the early 19th century, there was a general consensus about what caused madness. There was obviously a general consensus that um, head injuries could cause madness. You get a kick in the head by a horse, you know, and, and that gives you brain damage, and everyone could understand that. There, and there were obviously lots of people who suffered from 
head injuries who were then incapacitated in some way. So that was a general thing, people getting physically ill, hurt in that sort of way. People were thought to be able to go mad through terrible emotions. So obviously the idea of lovesickness, grief could turn people mad. Then there was that congenital, you know, from birth. And this was a term called idiocy, which again, the village idiot comes from this idea that some people obviously had to terrible mental disabilities from birth and sometimes uh, you know that was attributed to god and this was this was a concept that was still circulating in some parts of popular culture uh, was the idea that, that this idiocy was um, the, the result of punishment from god for sinful behavior of the parents and the mother in particular obviously and so you know that was still floating around as well what the early psychiatrists do is they bring in a whole new language which is alien to the popular culture and at the same time a whole new way of explaining away quite a, or explaining why people uh, go insane they accept quite a lot of the old stuff is still floating around but then they come up with a whole new set of theories about this and particularly trying to explain belief this is the key thing you know that's that before before then insanity was often something visual. You could see someone was insane. That's what everyone could agree. In a court, for example, when you're, whether it's to contesting a will and saying, well, he's mad, he can't write his own will. You know, it's behaviour. It's the way people look. And everyone could go, yeah, he's insane or she's insane. Um, and then the psychiatrist is the whole idea that, that belief can be a symptom of insanity. And that's where the book really kicks off on. Right, OK. And the, the, sort of the 19th century, the, the medical profession was looking back, weren't they, uh, over history, trying to explain things that had already happened. How did they explain things like the early modern witch hunts, you know, Salem, things like that? Yeah, it's fascinating. Once the discipline is starting to put down on, essentially put down a paper on publishing theories, they immediately want to go back. They're looking for source material to confirm their ideas about what is insane, what isn't insane, uh, in, in terms of belief. And of course, they, they immediately, almost immediately look back to all the trial materials from the witch trials. What really interests them are, are some of the most extreme stuff about possession, things that they think really get you into, into the minds of the past. And what they're basically doing is looking at all this amazing material from the witch trials and possession cases in particular and going, this is historical evidence for mass insanity. So they're saying we can, we can confirm that these ideas are notions of insanity are true because we have all this historic material which is then backed up by our own asylum patients. That's why we get the term witch craze or uh, hysteria, because the historians are borrowing from the language of the psychiatrists, and they both have this kind of shared thing, but the only way to understand it is that they were just all mad or temporarily insane. So the psychiatrists have a fundamental influence on how early historians and, and the language of his, even today of historians, as I mean, the A-level module or whatever on on the on the witch trials, it's called the witch craze. You know, most historians are trying to get away from this term of craze, but it all comes back to this psychiatric interest in in the witch trials. And how you know how widespread were those kind of old beliefs? Because obviously the nineteenth century is a, a real clash, isn't it, of the old and, and and the new? How prevalent were those beliefs still in fairies, in in kind of you know the folklore type things? If you look across Europe, it's all there. All, all, all the mm. all the beliefs, ideas, notions, popular ones, and also learned ones about diabolic pacts and possession, they're all there and still manifesting in in, in Europe uh, in different ways, in different cultures and countries. And, 
different religions. So in 19th century England, which is where I'm looking at all the case books and the patient case books, we get very little sign, for example, of people saying in the asylum saying, I, I've, I've written a pact with the devil. You know, they, they, some of them are expressing other ideas about that in terms of selling one's soul in a more spiritual way to the devil. But you can go over to the continent and, um, obviously Catholic France and there are mass outbreaks of possession taking place. Morzine, which is in the Alpine parts of France, massive outbreak, hundreds of people claim they've been possessed by the devil in the mid 19th century. They even have to bring in the police to control it. It goes on for years and psychiatrists are there and clergy priests are there. And so this is, you know, this stuff can happen still. All of these beliefs and expressions, which is why the psychiatrists looking at, because they're saying, oh, my patient's doing this, all that, all, you know, we've just, you know, we've just been looking at this amazing case in Morzine, you know, my God, this all looks like exactly the sort of thing we found in the 16th century, you know, uh, in the demonologies, uh, that we've been reading. So they can recognize this. That, and, and, but the thing is, the psychiatrists are basically, <laughs> in one sense, denying what's before their own eyes, because they're basically saying we can explain all that away, all the all the, the witch trials and the possession, and they're constructing a kind of thing. Well, we're, we're in the, then we had the Enlightenment, and of course we, we are now the cutting edge of medicine. These things are, are rare, and they're not really of particular interest. But at the same time, people keep coming to the asylum and expressing the same stuff. So there's a there's a kind of cognitive dissonance between their smugness about being uh, saying they can explain away these old, often attributed to Catholicism, you know, like, this is medieval stuff, even though it's not medieval. It's all about displacement, pushing it away. And yet at the same time, it, it is happening, but they don't really want to think about it. So they're not particularly interested in the beliefs of the present, because it's kind of, it mixes things up too much. So do we see sort of psychiatrists now getting involved in getting people admitted into asylums are they then kind of called in for their expert opinion yeah i mean I, it, it takes a quite lengthy it's quite you know it's a complex process going to the asylum and, and you know um people probably have quite a lot of misunderstandings so that, that so you just get carted off to the asylum you know <laughs> it's not like that there's a lot of certification there's a lot of checking and often the, the, the asylum superintendent requires all the paperwork. Uh, so it's, 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 it's a bureaucratic process. And that's the same whether it's in France or Germany or Spain or Italy or, or, or Britain, you know, so kind of dispel ideas that, that people are just being carted off because they're mad. But so, you know, the, the normal process is a family member or a neighbor has to say, basically say, I can't cope with this person anymore. They need help. They need. They need psychiatric help and therefore the process starts. But there's obviously criminal court cases where an uh, insanity is raised as a mitigating plea and that becomes increasingly important in the 19th century and uh, becomes a big clash again in America and, and in Europe in, in different, different legal systems. But everywhere there is this clash between psychiatric evidence as expert medical testimony about the insanity or not of a defendant and the legal profession and the two of them are kind of often clashing on this because the asylum superintendents or professors of, of, of medicine who are going in as expert witnesses in court and are often saying well from everything he's said and done and the evidence and i've talked to the you know i've talked to the defendant i i think he's probably temporarily insane when he did this, committed the murder or whatever. And this, this, this creates all sorts of legal problems. So temporarily and say, this is the one that really gets them. So you know, in the book, I talk about a number of cases where people have gone and killed suspected witches. And so the plea immediately was well, got to be insane because he believes in witches. And then the legal profession going, hold on, 
just because he believes in this doesn't necessarily mean that he's always insane. It, it becomes very muddy and uh, uh, complex in court. And so, in a sense, the legal profession have got, got these psychiatrists. Things are a lot more simple if you don't have, you know, expert medical witnesses talking about, uh, you know, bouts of temporary insanity. He's either guilty or not guilty, you know. Was there kind of any crossover in terms of the old beliefs and the new sort of science? So, in terms of things that could cause insanity or kind of increase it? So, things like the weather, the moon, you know, that type of thing. Was there a crossover at this this stage? Yeah, it's fascinating. it's fascinating how old beliefs, often going right back to antiquity, like lunacy, the idea that the moon could bring on bouts of insanity. I mean, the idea wasn't that the moon just made you permanently insane. The idea was that at certain times, of, uh, you know, certain moon phases, that someone would be affected. And that, 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 that goes back to antiquity. And yet, um, in the first decades of early psychiatry, there's quite a lot of psychiatrists and asylum superintendents who are going... Maybe there's something in this. And doing quite detailed research and, and logging when patients, uh, particularly those who are considered maniacal, in other words, they physically are physically raged. So, you know, again, it comes back to the idea you can physically see they must be insane. And trying to map that against um, lunar cycles. And they published this material right into the 1830s, 1840s. You know, second half of the 19th century, hardly any of the psychiatric profession believe that there's any influence on the moon. But it's, it's really... Um, it's tenacious that 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 belief because i think part because lots of people still believe it and so you get these asylum superintendents in the 1840s going i'm not sure i don't think there's something in this but every time a family or a friend brings in their their loved one and they say he's always bad at the full moon i can't think oh they can't be all wrong sort of thing so yeah you've got that and sunstroke you know the idea that called insulation, the idea that the sun can make you mad particularly lots of articles about sailors particularly in the empire, uh, and saying they've, 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 they've basically gone mad through the sun, sunstroke on board deck. They've slept on deck and got uh, got sunstroke. And that. And the thing with sunstroke uh, as a kind of cause of insanity was the idea that even when, when they came home, like a sailor or, or whatever, or a soldier had been out in the tropics, that these bouts came back. So you'll get these reports of them saying he was absolutely fine for three years, and then he just went start raving mad again. And you know, took all his clothes off and went running naked through the village, sort of thing. Uh, nothing we can do about it. It's got to go to the asylum, really. You know, and the asylum becomes this holding place for all these for all these people. So yeah, these these old notions are still kicking around, particularly in the first half of the nineteenth century. What about kind of physical illnesses, things like epilepsy, which in the past perhaps would have been seen, you know, fits would have been seen as possession, that type of thing. How how were they were they kind of accepted as physical? conditions in, in the 19th century or were they still seen as perhaps evidence of, of madness i mean epilepsy is a really tricky one for the psychiatrists um, obviously again epilepsy had been known and talked about back into antiquity lots had been written about it in the early modern period there was a supernatural element to it in popular understanding of epilepsy the idea it was like like a possession and that that epilepsy you know a common popular explanation right right into the 19th century um, was that epileptics were basically possessed by spirits. That's just what made them go into their fits, you know. And therefore, curing ep epileptics often brought in popular folk medicine uh, as a means to, in a sense, address the spiritual or supernatural causation rather than the physical causation. Obviously, most psychiatrists are going, no, no, obviously there's, no, there's no, well, all psychiatrists are basically, of course, there's no spirits here. There's no, there's no, there's no supernatural in this. But 
the debate for the psychiatrist is epilepsy madness or not and this goes on and on and, and, and can get it does get quite heated in, in some of the literature because you'll get some saying well yes epi- epilepsy is essentially a temporary form of insanity um, and therefore epileptics it is appropriate for epileptics to to come to the asylum to be treated and other ones are saying no epilepsy is physical you know um, this is not this is not about about the mind it's somatic it's about it's about the body and various malfunctions of the body so um, you do get these debates about whether ep- epileptics should be in asylums at all. And, and that increasingly becomes more and more the, the case of people going, no, epilepsy is a very separate condition that needs to be treated differently as well. So, yeah, epilepsy is a, a, a fascinating one, which you can track through centuries of different discourses uh, about, a, a, about a condition that obviously we know a lot about today and is treated by epileptic drugs. But you can imagine in the past why this was considered to be uh, something strange but are they insane or not insane is again becomes a, a debate which which takes it beyond popularly which is just about oh i want my my boy cured you know and if that means going to folk medicine or or you know asking a, a minister to pray over him then that's good as long as anything as long as it deals with it um, I'd really like to kind of move on to look at the kind of the asylums themselves and the, and the people inside, because I know that you've done a lot of research into kind of the, the records and kind of individual cases. So from your kind of research, what what reasons or what have you found for people being placed in asylums that, you know, that we can that relate to kind of the supernatural? There's a lot of people in asylums who are there, as I say, because of uh, what they believe. Sometimes that's tied in with physical behaviour that clearly does express mental health issues sometimes these supernatural beliefs are clearly symptomatic of someone who's got seriously ill but a lot of them when you look at the look at the material and you look at what um, at their lives a lot of them are just expressing beliefs which are perfectly normal within the culture of the time i.e. I believing in witchcraft or believing that they've talked or seen angels or that the, 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 the fairies have visited them which which look like signs of insanity to the psychiatrists and the asylum superintendents and the medical officers but uh perfectly normally if you look at the world of folklore so you've got folklorists going out to the countryside and recording all these beliefs isn't it quaint isn't it nice that people you know and then you've got psychiatrists saying yeah it's not quite normal believing in all that stuff and some of those beliefs though some of the patients clearly are severely mentally ill have got real problems and, and conditions I, I don't go into retrospective diagnoses in this book and I, it's a problematic area of history i'm not interested in retrospective diagnoses but you know you can see that some people have their, their beliefs about witches and persecution are so great you think okay this person probably does have a real problem which we could possibly put a label on but that's not my interest but a lot of them are just saying stuff which you as i say you know the idea of that that you're being bewitched by a neighbor does not make you insane and if you feel strongly about it there's plenty of evidence from other materials and folklore and newspaper court cases that these people aren't insane at all they just believe in witchcraft so there's 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 important boundaries there between people placing interpretations on on these supernatural beliefs and of course, when, when it comes to religion and people are saying they're, they're directly receiving the voice of God or they're talking to the Virgin Mary, well, in one context, in a religious context, that might be seen as perfectly reasonable. You know, after all, you've got lords, you've got, you've got Marianne visitations taking place. Why not this person from Scun, you know, Scunthorpe? Why not, why, why can't the, the girl from Scunthorpe have seen the Virgin Mary rather than saying she's insane? She needs to go to the asylum because, you know, you shouldn't be believing it. There's one case I've got of a, a young woman who um, says she saw the Virgin Mary at Manchester Piccadilly station, for example. And you think, 
well, if she'd said she'd seen that out on the top of Man Tour or something, then they think, oh gosh, maybe there's something here. Because it's Piccadilly Saver, I think she's mad. You know, she's insane, you know, because you, you clearly cannot see the Virgin Mary outside Manchester Piccadilly Station. So these interpretations are being put on other people's beliefs. And obviously, you know, we can't get into you know, the, the intimate lives of these people and their daily, because it's their friends and family who basically put them in the asylum. You know, we, we don't know, you know, how what the prion is but the beliefs themselves are often perfectly normal and what was done uh to help these or to to, to, to cure these patients once they were inside the, the asylum or, or were they there kind of was that it then people are bringing their friends and family to the asylum because they want something done one sometimes people are just they can't deal with it they can't deal with a family member who's who's preoccupied with with hell or um, who's absolutely convinced that um, they've been bewitched and are threatening violence against their neighbours. Often those things that trigger it, that we can't have this person here, we don't mind they believe in witchcraft, it's a bit boring listening to them sort of thing, but once they start threatening your neighbour, we need to take them in. And so part of part of the kind of the popular action side of this is getting, moving some something which is considered troublesome or just can't cope with your family member and going, we need someone specialist to deal with this now and I need a break. You know, I need a break from this. And then some of them are going, are thinking of cures. I think there's two things going on. One is just, just, I just need a break from this person. And the other one is maybe they can do something about it. And so you sometimes, there's, there's a big, there was a big debate in, in the history of psychiatry, um, in the history of medicine years ago, which was the whole idea that the whole idea that these asylums were some sort of police state, you know, and it was about controlling the population. It's much more ground up than that. People are using this as a, as a, as a health service for people with mental health issues. What do they expect when they go into the asylum to, to heal? I don't think they're not quite sure what goes, in, goes on in the asylum, but we obviously we can read what, what treatments are there. And sometimes the, the best treatment was just peace and quiet. Literally, that was, that was get them away from their environment. Right from the early psychiatrist, Pinel, famous Pinel, who was like the, one of the founders of French psychiatry and psychiatry generally. And he said, you know, a lot of the time when I've got these patients who believe they're possessed by the devil, for example, what they need is to be taken out of their house, their home, and bring to the asylum where they get peace and quiet, the place somewhere to walk, good food, you know, basic food, but good food, and just take them out of, of the, of the environment in which they, they're, they're obsessed with these beliefs, you know, and we'll put them in a new room and things like that. So, so quite basic therapy. Well, you know, it's, it's essentially, you know, um, a therapy which would well known today for suffering from stress or anxieties and things like that. So quite simple. And then you do get for more difficult patients, you know, the use of restraints, which is where the dark reputation of the asylum comes in. Restraints are used, uh, straight jackets. Straight jackets aren't actually used that much. It's a big icon of, you know, <laughs> of how you represent, you know, 19th century asylums, but actually they were very sparingly used and often they were only on for a couple of hours. You didn't have people left for days in straight jackets here. And it was only for violent patients as well. For violent patients, you would also, during the second half, start bringing in a range of drugs start getting used and this becomes quite controversial because it, it seems to be like almost a chemical restraint you know okay we've moved on from physical restraint uh, but then there's criticism that instead of just physical restraint you're actually what you're doing is drugging people uh, and making them sick in another way you're not dealing with a problem you know so those those are parts of asylum treatment in this period but you know the, the key one bathing is another common one uh, and that goes right back to popular 
notions and cures for, for insanity in the 18th, 17th century, uh, depression as well. So yeah, it's a mix, but you know, the long and short of it is just take people out of their place where they're, where they, they're holding all these beliefs which are making them sick or ill or, or annoying their friends and families. Another thing that you mentioned in the book is this kind of fear of technology and how you sort of there are there are cases that that you found that where that's kind of the reasoning behind people's admittance to to the asylum that people you know can you explain a little bit more about that please fascinating because obviously you know early psychiatry and the asylum movement is happening at the same time as industrialization and urbanization and, and technological advance and we can see through studying asylum patient case notes how some people are responding to this this technology the advances in technology whether it's obviously railways engines machines mechanization so you see these fundamentals that whether it's the 19th century or today technology responses some people are are going to go there's something more of this is someone using this power against me and early on, you get early on, I mean, early on in early 19th century, you've got mesmerism is still quite popular and held by some of the medical establishment and the idea of invisible powers, animal magnetism, mesmerism. And so you do get this association early on between mesmerism and people using machines at a distance to somehow influence, call it the influencing machine. And there's a fascinating case from um, Bedlam. Uh, asylum of a very well educated man who drew this machine and he drew this fantastic diagram of this extraordinary machine that was being used against him and it was housed down the road from the asylum and he says this is the machine they're using against me the invisible powers i can hear them talking through this machine and so he's seeing he's seeing this he's explaining what others might think of as a supernatural invisible force but he's explaining in technological terms and you see this quite a lot and as you go through the century, as you get developed of the telegraph and then the telephone, for example, people see that and simply go, ah, I'm hearing all these voices or people telling me to do things or talking against me. And I can see now that it, they're using a telephone, right? They're using a telephone against me or they're, they're using the telegraph against me. And um, so he goes, it's like a bingo. I now, my, me, because I'm being persecuted by these people, but now I can explain it. And they quite grandly will go to the site superintendent and go, I'm not insane, see, because look, it, it tele- these telephones, these people speak to them. So technology gets wound up. And, and from a, an, another perspective, people uh, essentially treat some of these things as though they're a new form of witchcraft, these supernatural powers. This is particularly so with electricity and batteries. You get lots of cases where people are going, my neighbor is using a battery against me. I feel strange at times. I feel all, all, all strange and queasy. And the only explanation is not a witch, but it's they're using a battery, you know, invisible battery down on the other farm. You know, I know they, they've got a battery and they're using it against me. So you get this almost technological witchcraft. It doesn't often last long. You know, it's a kind of reception period, but it's really quite profound because people are trying to make sense and they'll make sense of technology in this supernatural way, just as it's like, you know, there's always people out there who want to do you harm and they're, they're finding all these different ways. You don't have to use spells anymore because they can use this, these, these other forces. You know, Fascinating. That was Owen Davies, Professor of Social History at the University of Hertfordshire. His recent book, Troubled by Faith, Insanity and the Supernatural in the Age of the Asylum, is available now. 
published by Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. Thank you.